Well, we're privileged today to have Mr. and Mrs. Stanley with us. Stand up. We're so grateful to see a God working in your life, and it was just a wonderful service, and we're glad to have you back with us. Okay, we're so glad that we're all here together that we might worship together to worship his holy name. And at this time, if we have any of the children that need to go back, we can come right back there, Eric, right over here. Okay, come on over, guys. There we go. Couple more coming? Okay. Our youth group had a great time last night. Chuck and Laura were at our house, and they were teaching dancing. Thankfully, my mother was with Jesus now, because otherwise... <laughs> We could be in very deep trouble. <laughs> Mom, I'm sorry, but, um, uh, but no, we're really great. We had a great time. The kids were there, and we had a fun time together, and we're so grateful for God's work in the life of our young people, and we're grateful for that. We're coming today to the end of the series that we've been working through in 1 Samuel and here into a little part of 2 Samuel. It's really the story of going from the beginning of God working in his people and bringing them to bring to David. Now, if you're listening to when Dara was reading the, the beautiful psalm, it's basically telling the story of what's going on. The fact that how God had worked in keeping the promises that he gave to his people. And, of course, it's done in a much more poetic way, in a beautiful way. But if you're listening, you remember at the end, it suddenly changed the tone. It's saying, but we have all these promises, but it doesn't seem like it's working for us. Why are we struggling? And it's dealing with those issues of where is God sometimes he doesn't seem to be there. But what we have this morning is the last part of this. This is 2 Samuel, okay, chapter 7, the last passage that we're working on in here. And we're going to look at this passage together. The passage I want to do, I want to go through as we normally do, kind of read through the passage, discuss a little bit, but then kind of talk what's the significance of this as we come to the end of the series. By the way, to let you know where we're going from this next week, one of my good friends, Vladimir Pickman, that many of you have known, Vladi, as Larry likes to call him, uh, is going to be here preaching from Berlin. And as many of you know, he's had a great ministry uh, serving in Berlin. And um, I hope you all be there. He's going to have a great minister, uh, uh, service, I'm sure, next week. Let's pick up our passage, if we would, here. We're now at the end of this series, coming to the end of the series. And when 2 Samuel chapter 7 the theme of this is the promise is fulfilled. All along we've been saying God making promise after promise after promise, and yet David has a promise, but all he has, it seems, like is a lot of trouble. Samuel had anointed him to be king of Israel, but he never thought it was going to be as hard as it turned out to be. He was going to go through one thing to another, being chased one here, having to hide here, going to here and there, and life was very tough for him. And so this passage is so beautiful, talking about how God works in there. And finally, he brings his fulfillment to us as his people. So in this passage, what we have, it falls down into two major parts. Two major parts in chapter 7. First of all, parts 1 to 16 is God speaking to David through Nathan the prophet. Okay, that's the first half of it. The second half of it is verses 17 to 29. This is where now David is speaking to God. Okay, the first one is, is one going to speaking to that, now speaking to God. So we'll pick up this reading right here in verses 1 to 3. When the king, when King David 
had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from his enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, Look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark of God stand, sits outside in, te, in, 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 excuse me, in tent curtains. Now, just a thing to notice, it's a little different here. The very first verse said, when the king had settled into his palace and the Lord had given him rest on every side from his enemies, what's a little odd about it, if you go to the next chapter, it's all about David fighting his enemies, which gives you a realization at times when they're putting these books of Bibles together that they would sometimes move things chronologically a little bit different. So what we have here, it's David finished all with his battles. And here, but when this passage is saying, no, they first want to do that. He dealt with the battles, and now it's here. So that's one of the same, the scriptures, how sometimes they change things around in the, in the order of things. So notice what happened. David has this sense of, you know, all these kings around us, they all have a beautiful, beautiful temple that they have their gods in. And what do we have? We got a tent. And he's thinking, you know, we got to do something better than this. David said, look, I'm living in a cedar house while the ark, the ark of the covenant, sits inside tent curtains. He's like, we can do better than that. So notice what happens. So Nathan, the prophet, said to the king, to David, go and do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But the Lord had other plans. Okay, You can have your plans, but God has his plans. The plan is, but that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan the prophet. And here's what Nathan was heard for the Lord to tell him to tell David. From this time, this is God speaking through Nathan. From this time, I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today. I've not lived in a house. Instead, I've been moving around in the tabernacle tent. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I asked anyone among the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel? Have I ever said, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? No, there's God saying, I don't need a house. I don't need you to get a special place for me. Now, later on, they were going to, after we have David is gone and his son takes over. But at this point, he's saying, I've never lived in a house. I don't need to do this. So notice what happens. And so Nathan's reading from what the Lord had told him. Now, this is what you're to say to my servant David. God speaking to Nathan. Nathan now saying, speaking to him. Now, this is what you're to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, says. I took you, speaking to David, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. It's a beautiful little phrase saying, do you remember when this all started, this story? Young guy out in the fields. I kept saying, well, don't you have other sons in this? Well, yeah, there's one kid out there that's taking care of the sheep and the goats. Samuel said, well, we're not going to go anywhere until we see him. He sees David, and he knows that's the one. And he anoints him with oil. And he's a young guy. You know, we have the, to that, you have the story of him killing Goliath, and you have this, and then, of course, the struggles of Saul, Saul chasing him. But it's a beautiful little statement saying, I took you from the pasture. In other words, you were sort of nothing when I started with you, but I gave you a wonderful promise. He said, I took you from the pasture and from following the sheep to be a ruler over my people Israel. A promise that happened so long ago for David, thinking, yeah, when's that ever going to happen? He didn't realize it was going to be a long time before he ever got to be king. But he goes on to say, speaking with him to God, I have been with you, David, 
excuse me, I have been with you wherever you've gone, and I've destroyed all your enemies before you. I'll make your name for you like that of the greatest in the land. I'll establish a place for my people Israel. Remember how Israel, the people, had been moving around from place to place? And I said, now I will give you a place. I will establish a place for you, for my people Israel, and I'll plant them so they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not afflict them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, it's getting really serious here, the Lord himself will make a house for you. Now again, obviously here's the big change. David wants to build a house, brick and mortar house, well, cedar, let's say, with rock, okay? But he's saying, not that house, I don't need that house. I'm going to build a house for you, a house which is a son, a grandson, a great-grandson. In fact, a line of kings that are come from David, your loins, that family from one after another will one day bring about salvation for God's people. And so he said, the Lord himself will make a house for you, not out of bricks and mortar, but out of family. Whenever the time comes and you rest with your fathers, I'll raise up the you descendants who will come from your body, and I will establish your kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him, and he'll be a son to me. When he does wrong, I'll discipline him with a human rod and with blows from others. We heard about that in the passage that Dara read just a little while ago. But his point is, I may have to punish them. I may have to bring terrible things upon them to turn around to follow God. But I will work with this. He said, but my faithful love will never leave him as I removed it from Saul. I removed him from your way. Your house, and here is this famous phrase, your house line of kings and kingdom will endure before me forever. Forever is going to be a key word in this passage. You will be endured before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan spoke all these words and this entire vision to David. This is really what we've come through beginning all the way back, going we talked about how God was working through Samuel, all this thing. This is the goal that we wanted to get to in our series. And it's a great way to bring it to an end because here we see in an ultimate way how God has been faithful to his people in the midst of their struggles and their sorrows and all the things that they went through, and particularly to David. Here God has been at work in a remarkable way. And so what I want to do is take a little bit of time to say, why is this so significant? Why do so many people and scholars look upon this and say, this is really the high point of what we have in this section of the scriptures that God gave us. So what we have here is David's prayer to God, where David says, where David now is going to, we're on the second half of it, where David is now talking to the Lord. He's speaking to the Lord. He's like overwhelmed by the mercy of God. And so he responds in this absolutely beautiful, beautiful praise to God. And by the way, it's very theological. I mean, he's really very much aware of the goodness of God and how God works among his people. So now it's David's turn to speak to God in gratitude. Then David went in, sat in the Lord's presence. Not sure exactly what that is. It may have been in maybe a place where near the ark was. And he said, who am I, Lord God, 
and what is my house that you've brought me this far? There's that sense of realizing, what kind of gracious God are you that you would do this for me? I don't deserve it. It's pure mercy. It's pure grace. And I recognize it, and I recognize that what you've done for me, and I'm so grateful for it. So he said, and what is my house that you've brought me this far? What you have done so far was a little thing to you, Lord God, for you have spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. In other words, you're not only telling me what's happened in the past, but you're telling me what's going to happen for me as a king. You've also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. And this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. I realize you're at work in this. You're giving us looking down that pipeline of how long that may be, that you're working among us. We can see that you're at work. What more, David says, can David say to you, Lord? You know your servant, Lord God. Now listen to this phrase. Because of your word and according to your will, you have revealed all these great things to your servant. He's got a very high view of the scriptures, by the way, even though they had so little of them compared to what we have now. But he recognized, notice that phrase, because of your word and according to your will. A recognition that the scriptures that God gives us and the things that he tells us, that we can have confidence in what he's given to us. He's revealed all these things to your servant. Like, Lord, you just keep piling up these good things for me and how grateful I am. And so David said, this is why you're great, Lord. There's no one like you. There's no God besides you. As all we have heard confirms. By the way, there's several songs and hymns that we sing that have those same phraseology. There's no God like you. Now, the question you might ask, scholars ask is, did David, is David saying there that he recognizes that there's only one God, one single God? We call it monotheism. Some would argue, well, yeah, David is a monotheist. He believes in only one God, but maybe there's other gods as well. I don't think so. I think this time David gets it. There is only one God who can truly be called God that's worthy of being called God. And so he said, this is why you're great, Lord. There's no one like you. There's no God beside you, as all we have heard confirms. And who is like your people Israel? Now he's moving to the bigger picture, thinking, what a privilege that you would choose us. I mean, you only have to go back to the book of Exodus and find out just how much Israel continues struggled. They whined about this, and they complained about that, and there's no food, and there's no water, and there's no this, and we're not having da 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 And he kept on going on saying, you know what? In spite of their failure, in spite of the way my chosen people have continued to get it wrong, he said, you continue to be faithful in spite of them. Yes, at times you're going to have to discipline them, but he said, you are so faithful. Who was like your people, Israel? God came to one nation on earth in order to notice this phrase, to redeem a people for himself, to make a name for himself and to perform for them great and awesome acts driving out nations and their gods before your people. You redeemed yourself from Egypt. Go keep, often keep going back to Egypt. That was sort of the major one where they say, where did God work in such an amazing way? Because we were you know, living in a terrible situation in Egypt, and you have redeemed us. And so David goes on talking about how God has been so merciful. You, Lord, established your people Israel, your own people Forever, we're going to keep saying that verse. And you, Lord, will become their God. Now, Lord, he asked David, fulfill the promise. 
Once again, that word promise, forever, that you have made to your servants and to your house as you have promised. And so that your name will be exalted forever when it is said, the Lord host of God is God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established before you, since you, your Lord, Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, whom you said, I can't believe you were gracious enough to reveal yourself in this way to me. And then he said this, I will build a house for you. Therefore, your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. I think it's kind of interesting. Why do you need courage to talk to the Lord? But I think he's very aware that he's in the presence of the Lord. And so he's coming to the Lord and said, Lord, what I've seen you do in the past and what I've seen you do now gives me the courage to bring my prayers to you and to know that you're a God who's there, who knows, who cares. Therefore, your servant has found the courage to pray this prayer to you. Lord God, you are God. Your words are true. You've promised this grace to your servant. Now please, he asked for himself, bless your servant's house, that lineage of kings, forever, so that you continue for you forever. For you, Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing, your servant's house will be blessed forever. Forever keeps being that word that forever seems to be coming up in this passage. The fact that God has worked so mightily in the lives of people, and particularly the people of Israel. Now, when we come to 2 Samuel, this is a passage that a lot of theologians look at, people that study the Old Testament. And one of the things, well, for example, one guy put it way, 2 Samuel, we have now chapter 7, the ideological summit of the Old Testament as a whole. In other words, this is the high point. The point where God has made these promises to his people, where David is now installed as king, where David's not going to, at least in his lifetime, is not going to have a literal king, a, 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 a place, a temple, but God is going to create a line of kings, one son after another, that's going to ultimately lead to an ultimate son who's going to bring salvation for his people. So a lot of people look at this passage and see this as the high point, which is a good place for us to end the series. Another writer put it this way. This is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. You know, when you've got a biblical scholar who says this is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, there's a lot of chapters in the Bible. And to say that this is one of them gets, it shows you the significance. This is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It expressed an ideology through which Israel would define itself, notice this, as a nation, as a people, and as a religion. In other words, those big three things that we talked about last week, they have come together. David is in relationship with God. David has recognized that, no, God said you're not going to build the temple. Your son will do that. But he said, David, I'm going to give you something even better, a son a grandson, a great-grandson, a great-great-grandson, all the way down the line, and they're going to mess up, and they're going to make mistakes, and you're going to have to punish them. But I want to tell you, I will keep the promises I made to you and your line of kings. And that's why that passage is so important, because it's talking about the covenant, how God works so greatly in the covenants, the commitments that he made to his people. For example, Genesis chapter 12 Abraham comes into the promised land, and God tells him about the fact that he brought you here, and you're going to be blessed, and you're going to be a blessing to others, and so it's kind of made a covenant. But you go on to the next couple chapters, chapter 15, this one becomes more significant because we have him saying, okay, David, excuse me, David, he says, come on, Abraham, come out here and look at the stars. 
And I know your wife's infertile. And I know both of you are old. And I know you're beyond the point of having children. But I want you to do something. I want you to look. Look at these stars. Could you ever count them? No. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I am going to give you a son. Not just a son. I'm going to give you descendants that are like the stars in the sky. And the kind of covenant that he's making here, which is very important, is he's making an unconditional covenant to God. In other words, saying, whatever it is happens, all the problems, I will guarantee you this is what's going to happen. And that's the strength for maybe we can jump up to Exodus 19, where now Israel has come to, their, to, um, to, to Mount Sinai, and he has, he's there, but he's, there's a different kind of, con, of covenant. That covenant is a conditional covenant. Okay? It has the word if with it all the times. If you will follow me, and if you will do what I've told you to do, and if you do this, then I'm going to make it so wonderful for you. You're going to have more kids than you know what to do with, and you're going to have more food than you can imagine. You know, so all the things you're going to have if you do this. But God keeps saying, but if you turn away to other gods, if you start worshiping these other gods, then you can't imagine what's going to be coming your way. It's like a freight train coming right down the road, coming to you. Because I've given you this great covenant. I've given you everything you've needed. I've provided for you. And because if you turn away, man, watch out. Because hardship is coming your way. That's, an, that's a conditional covenant. The word if is the important one. We go a little bit further. You go to 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're back to the, not the conditional one, but the one that says, Whatever, it's forever. It won't be changed. And that's where we're at in the series. We come to the end of saying, this is an unconditional one. I have made this promise to you and to your descendants. This passage, you see, remember, go back. He said, you establish your people, Israel, your own people, forever. And you, Lord, have become their God. Now, Lord God, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant and to his house. Do as you promised. This passage about King David's house, that being a lineage of kings, is so significant because we see how God worked over this. God has given now a living house of one king after another. Some were great. Some were awful. Some were just mediocre. But the fact that God has made a covenant, an unconditional covenant, is what keeps that thing going and moving on. Matthew chapter 1. You don't have to turn it if you want to. But what you notice is that Matthew, when he comes to write this beautiful gospel, he, he puts it into three groups of 14 generations. And you can see here, by the way, here are some, or it could be more like, like 18 or a little bit less, but he's doing this for a very important right, a really important reason. He wants three generations to be shown here. And what he's going to do is show, here's 14 kings, Here's 14 kings that ended with disaster, but here's another 14 kings, and at the end of that, there's going to be a very special king of David. You'll see as we go along. First one is chapter 1, and there it says three groups of 14. And what you've got, it deals with the line from Abraham to King David. Okay, so that's going from Abraham to David, and that's only 14, 14 kings. Which, by the way, reminds you of the fact that what you've got going on is that there's just exclusive ones. They're not as, all of them are not there. So first of all, the first 14 is Abraham to King David. How God started with Abraham, telling him to go to a place you don't even know where you're going, but I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to multiply you. 
It starts there, and it goes all the way to King David. So then King David, he has a son, Solomon. From there, Rehoboam. And then you have a whole bunch of these ites peoples and all these other kings going on. And notice what's happening here. You've got the first one. You've got a group of three. Excuse me, I pressed the wrong way. But then you come. Here's what it sounds like. It give you the idea. This is in Matthew chapter 1. It starts off this way. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Notice from the very beginning, he wants to make it clear that where we're going with this is going to lead us to David, who's not just a king. He is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then he gives the names. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah, Judah had his brothers, and Judah fathered Perez, and Perez had Zerah by Tamar, and then there was Tamar gets in there. And then Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, and they go on for that list for the fourteen. Then you got a second group of 14 kings, David to the time of the Babylonian exile. And that, of course, is where things went really bad. And so you go along down the road there. This is the kings that have gone down from David. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz, which was a Bad king, it was bad. Uh, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the two great kings of Israel. Hezekiah restored the nation back to the way it should have been in the time of David. He got rid of all the all idols and all the different things that they had in the temple. He was, got, he was given a book of the law. He read it and he tore his clothes saying, what happened to us? How did we get so far off the bat that where we should have been? And so Hezekiah was a great king. Hezekiah was a great king, but here's one of the great weird things of Scripture that I don't understand. Hezekiah, one of the greatest of the kings, had the very worst son. And his name was Manasseh. Manasseh undid just about everything that Hezekiah did right. I don't quite understand why. I, you know, in heaven you can talk to the Lord about it. Manasseh was terrible. He brought in uh, idols from all the different gods around them, worshiping. They were worshiping the sun and the moon, the stars, all the terrible things. Israel was at a low point where it seemed like it would never recover. But Manasseh, fortunately, it's interesting, he, was a, he, he, he died. He fathered Ammon. Ammon fathered, and then you got another great king, Josiah. Josiah was a wonderful king. He went back the way Hezekiah was and restored the temple the way it should have been. He brought back worship to the Lord. He fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. What's interesting there in that passage is, it was interesting, Josiah was one of the greatest of the kings. And yet he went out in battle. I think he was only 35 years old. He went out in battle with the Egyptians, and he died. And people wondered, if he was such a wonderful king, why did God not give him more years? That's another question you can ask the Lord when you get to heaven, okay? But what's interesting here, it's saying there's a group of 14 of the descendants of David. Here's another 14, but the sad part is this was at the time, it says, of the exile to Babylon. Seemed like it's game over. All the best of the crop of the people that are there, the people who are, the, uh, who are the, of the government and those who are the, all those things, taken away. Taken away to Babylon. They were scattered among the nations. Many people think, you know what? It's all over. The story's over for them. 
because they could look around to all the other nations that the Assyrians and Babylonians had done. They would take the cream of the crop, the smart ones, the people that have ability, all the people that have multiple languages, they'd take them and they'd scatter them around the reign, and they would all just remarry into other groups, and it'd be all over. The Ammonites are gone, Moabites are gone, all those ites people are gone, Israel's going to be gone. No, it's not. Because God has made a promise to his people. And while the other nations are being absorbed into other cultures, they are not. And even though they've been carried out, and even by one of their kings has now had his eyes, watched, his, watched the, uh, as he was there, and they took his children, and they made him watch as they gouged the eyes out of his children. They took him into Babylon, and everybody thought, story's over. God keeps his promises, even at the lowest point of human existence. And so what happens is a Persian king says, you know what? You know those Jews? They're still around, aren't they? Yeah, they really are. You know what? If they want to go back, let them go back. In fact, let's give them back some of all the trophies that we stole from them. Why would a Persian king do that? I don't know other than the fact that God was working in the life of a Persian king and said, you know what? It's going to be a long journey. You're going to have to go through this terrible area to get through there. You want to go? You can go. And here's a letter from you saying you can start over again with your life in Israel. And so the last group, the last group of 14, that goes from the exiles, Zezekiah and some of the other ones, from the exile to Jesus, Jesus the son of David. And so what you see, you've got three groups of 14, intentionally put to showing, here's God doing this, look at this, here's disaster, but here's God bringing them back to what we call the Holy Land, where they had a hard time. They started rebuilding a new temple, and God, again, was being faithful to his people. And notice that, it talks about the fact, it says, Elihu, going back through here, we're getting to the last part of it, Elihu fathered Eliezer, Eliezer followed Mothan, Mothan fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Joseph, notice this phrase, Joseph, the husband of Mary. Notice the fact that it's recognizing that this is a virgin birth. It's not from a regular relationship. Say, Jacob fathered Joseph, Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Mashiach, the Messiah. And so what you've got is David, and we saw those phrases, the son of God, the son of David, that here is now finally, after all these generations, God has given the ultimate king, King David. That is the Messiah who's Jesus. And so that's why when the, rep the people said to Jesus, who do you think you are? You think you're the Messiah, son of David? David goes, I mean, you know what you have? Jesus said, yeah, actually, I am. And that's, of course, it contributed to the fact that they needed to kill him. But the reality is, you can't keep a good man down when Lord is the one who's involved with it. It's all about the resurrection, not far from us now, where they realize that he's alive and he's well, and he is the one we've been waiting for for generation after generation after generation. And Lord, you have been faithful to your people. And we're getting ready for Easter. We're going through Lent now, but we're coming to the day where we're going to be celebrating the fact that Christ is alive and well, and he is our Messiah forever and ever. And one thing you can be sure of, 
he will keep his promises. Real quickly, let me show you this passage. I love this in Hebrews. Hebrews 7. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by. In other words, you can't say, I swear to, you know, so what? You're already talking about God. That's the highest. He had no one greater to swear by. He He swore by himself, saying, I will most certainly bless you, and I'll greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham attained the promise. Again, the idea of waiting, but waiting for that promise. But another passage, we have this thing, a promise made, a promise that's been kept. And I love this passage. Verse 6, chapter 6 of Hebrews. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms that it's, uh, that it's said, and it puts an end to all arguments. Now notice this. Because God wants to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he's promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we have fled to take hope of the hope offered to us that we may be greatly encouraged. You can be greatly encouraged today because we can look back and see what God has done. He has kept every promise that he's made, which gives us the courage and the strength to know he's going to keep every promise that is yet ahead of us. We have struggles. We have hurts. We have things where we wonder, why is God doing this? What is this all about? The one thing we know is we have a God who keeps his promise that's enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for this series that we've worked through. We thank you that you brought us to the end of this series, too, to the point where we see that you have given us not just a king, but the Messiah king, the Messiah king who is actually Lord, who is the second person of the Trinity, who died and rose again, and that we're going to have perfect time with him when we come to be in his presence forever. Be with us. Help us now as we worship again through a song we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.